When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's show, Nick Hyam, the journalist and author, joins us to discuss his book, The Mercenary River. Nick Hyam is a journalist known to TV viewers in the UK as a familiar face from the BBC, where he was media and arts correspondent, an analyst for BBC News, and also a regular host of its literary interview show, appropriately enough, Meet the Author. He has a new book, The Mercenary River, Private Greed, Public Good, A History of London's Water. It tells the story of a resource in the city we all often take for granted, H2O. But like any life essential, the flow of water in London throughout history has been fiercely contested, diverted and exploited over the centuries. Our host for the discussion is the author Alex Preston. Alex's own books include the Nature Anthology, As King Fishers Catch Fire, and historical novels In Love and War and his latest, Win Chelsea. Here's Alex with more. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, Nick. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Alex. I'd like to go back to think about where this book began for you, because one of the things that I think it does so brilliantly is take something that is clearly an integral part of our lives, and yet, to me, really kind of completely overlooked. I had never thought about this story before, and I wonder when it occurred to you that water would be such a fascinating way to tell a social, cultural corporate history of of Britain, but particularly of London? Well, the interest in water came first, the water supply. And then I thought, ah, you can do all sorts of things in a book like this, because it covers so many different aspects of our lives, from engineering to laundry to personal hygiene to the history of business and so on. The, the starting point was that I live in North London, near the original route of something called the New River, which isn't new, and it's not a river. It's a man-made aqueduct, which was built to bring water from Hertfordshire to the city of London. And it's not new because it was completed in 1613, more than 400 years ago. And astonishingly, it still provides roughly 10% of, of London's water. 10% of London's drinking water comes down the New River I every day. I found that to totally amazing. It so, is great, so isn't it? Fascinating. And yeah, you, yeah. Can, you can walk the route of the New River uh, north from where I live in Stoke Newington, all the way up to the River Lee in between Hertford and where, where most of the water comes from. But 
immediately past my home. It's no longer there. It, it, it got as far as Stoke Newington and then originally ran to Islington, but in the 1940s, the Islington part was abandoned. And you can find traces of it, bits of open water in our local park, uh, bizarrely wide streets with a central reservation of grass and trees down the middle, which show where it used to run. And that, that was the first thing that intrigued me. I thought, what is this? Why is the our, our local streetscape slightly weird? What's going on here? And then you discover the new river, and then you discover the man who created the new river, who was a, a Jacobean, Elizabethan Jacobean goldsmith called Hugh Middleton. And then you start to understand that beyond the new river, there is this whole, to me anyway, and I hope to other people, absolutely fascinating story about something which, as you say, we most of the time we take for granted. Water's just there. You turn a tap on, it comes out. Now, you begin the book with a story, and it's the actions of the Southwark Vauxhall Waterworks in Richmond in January 1877. And what's nice about it is that, A, I knew nothing about it, and B, it neatly encapsulates a friction that sits at the heart of this book, which is between the incredible innovation driven by some of these companies who managed the delivery of water into our homes and the extraordinary greed of the men, and it was all men, who ran them. Yes, it is extraordinary. Uh, I had never heard of it either, and I couldn't quite believe it when I came across it. And to modern thinking, it is actually really rather grotesque. The Southwark and Vauxhall supplied water to large parts of South London and to the town of Richmond, which was not actually part of London. It was a sort of a detached suburb. And uh, the local people in Richmond decided that they could provide their own water, set up their own waterworks to provide water more cheaply than the Southwark and Vauxhall. So they set out to establish an alternative supply. And the Southwark and Vauxhall believed that if this happened, it would lose a lot of money, not, not just money going forward, a lot of business, but also the people who were taking its water in Richmond would not pay their water bills as soon as they knew that there was going to be an alternative available, and this would cost the Southwark and Vauxhall money. So they decided that they would cut off the entire town's water. And they did this even though they knew that the proposed alternative waterworks in Richmond was not yet ready, wouldn't be ready for many weeks, maybe many months, and that most of the people they were cutting off had no alternative source of water. And they went ahead and did it anyway. And the result, not surprisingly, was controversy and deep unhappiness in Richmond and so on. But the reason it's so interesting, as you say, is that it, it's a graphic illustration of a problem, a tension, which was present in London's water supply, the business of supplying London's water from the very earliest days, from Elizabethan times. The people, the organisations that supplied the water were private companies. They had shareholders who were in it for money. And indeed, one of England's, possibly the world's very first modern business corporations was a London water company, the New River Company, established in 1619. But the people who took the water, who paid for it, they wanted a copious supply of clean water, and they resented the idea that 
there was somebody taking a, a, a percentage off the top. They were having to pay too much for it because it was being uh, supplied by private companies. And this tension was present throughout the history of London's water. It flared up from time to time. It was particularly acute in the 19th century, and it was only resolved in 1904 when the eight private London water companies were taken over by something like the Metropolitan Water Board. And now that water has been privatised again, we're back where we were in the 19th century. Well, aren't we just? Now, there are kind of other heroes, I guess, of this story. And probably the one that most people will have heard of is Joseph Bazalgette. Uh, Bazalgette? How does one pronounce that? Uh, Well, his great great-grandson, Peter Bazalgette, who made um, a great deal of money as a successful television producer and then became kind of uh, arts bigwig and was the chairman of the Arts Council and so on. He calls it Bazalgette. Anyway, Joseph Bazalgette was the man who, in the 1860s, came to London's rescue. I wasn't originally going to write about Bazalgette because I said to myself, I'm writing a book about how clean water gets to people and all the challenges, technical, scientific, uh, uh, that that involves. And what they do with clean water. And Bazalgette was about getting the nasty, dirty stuff away and out. Um, But then I realised the two stories are absolutely inextricably entwined. In the very end of the 18th century, some clever people invented flushing water closets, the flushing loo. And the problem about flushing loos is they're great for the individual in the home, but the waste, all that water has to go somewhere. And Londoners had stored their waste, if that's the word, in cesspits under their houses. I, uh, I love this. I love you talk about a um, somebody surveying a house and finding three feet of night soil piled in the basement. And I just thought, I mean, what a horrifying idea. But of course, what else could you do with it? Uh, well, yeah, that was a, that was not how it was supposed to work. Just just piles of night, night soil, which is, of course, a, a polite word for something much more unpleasant. Um, that, that What was supposed to happen was that they were supposed to go into cesspits dug in the ground. And from time to time, these cesspits would be emptied out by men called gong farmers who would take the product, if that's the word, out to the suburbs of London, where it would be used to fertilise the vegetables growing in the market gardens. And so in a sense, Londoners from a very early stage were eating their own excrement. Cesspits, however, got overwhelmed by water, by liquid Uh, They overflowed instantly as soon as you installed a flushing WC, a flushing loo. And so the solution to that was to put all the Londoners' waste into the River Thames. And by the 1850s, the Thames was basically one enormous stinking sewer. And Bazalgette's great achievement was to build a network of sewers which took all the stuff that had been going into the Thames and take it downriver to a point on the south bank uh, called Cross Ness near Thamesmead, uh, and then put it into the river. So it was downstream from the built-up part of town and less offensive. And he did that only after a disastrously hot summer in 1858, uh, which produced something called the Great Stink, which was so, the river stank so badly, they had to abandon sittings in the uh, the Houses of Parliament. They had to abandon law courts. People left town. It was just appalling. And very quickly after that, the government made available a financial arrangement to enable these sewers to be built. And we owe a debt to Bazalgette and have done ever since. And his sewers, for the most part, are still in use and they still do the job they were supposed to do, to design to do, even though the city he built them for had a population of about 3 million and the population of London now is 
um, you know, getting on for 10 million. Yeah. And, you know, I guess the lifespan of, of the Thames is one of the threads that runs through the book. You know, you talk about how salmon were found in the Thames, you know, up until relatively late on in the life of London. And that yet now we are now returning to a place where, uh, where it is a very clean river. Uh, it is now, yes, um, except when things go wrong. And things do go wrong quite often because although Bazalgette's system was, was a brilliant one, the bigger the city gets and also the more we pave over our front gardens to park our cars and pave over our back gardens to create patios and the more heavy, the more heavily it rains and, and we are getting heavier, more, less predictable rain as a result of climate change, the more often the sewer system that he uh, created gets overwhelmed. And when that happens, he put in a kind of fail safe. He said on those rare occasions when the sewers can't cope, uh, the, the effluent will still discharge into the river. It'll be very di dilute, but it'll still discharge into the river. Unfortunately, these days that happens far more often than it used to. And Thames Water has a eye-wateringly expensive scheme, which if you know central London is, is, is now being constructed called the Thames Tideway Ch Tunnel, which is a vast great tube running underneath the Thames, which will take the overflows when it happens. Um, but there is also a separate problem, which is a result of great underinvestment in the last 30 or 40 years. Um, the private companies that supply our water and take our sewage away in this country have been inadequately regulated. Uh, since they were privatized in the 1980s, they have been allowed to make huge profits and to run up enormous debts, which have gone to uh, produce bigger dividends for the shareholders. And they have not been forced by the regulators to invest enough money in renewing and Im improving and increasing their plant and their pipe networks and so on. And one of the consequences of that is that in many cases, sewage uh, treatment works are discharging on dozens of days a year, untreated sewage. If you go to Putney in uh, London on the Thames, there's what looks like a mudflat, but is in fact, at low tide, a great mass of wet wipes and things that people have put down there lose, which have been discharged by a sewage works upstream, which simply can't cope with the quantities that it's being asked to deal with. And that picture is repeated in many rivers around the country country and around our coasts. And some of the privatised water companies have been fined very large sums of money, £23 million Thames Water, £90 million last year, Southern Water, for uh, Ill illegal discharges of, of untreated sewage. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, 
H-E-L-P.com slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. I'm so fascinated by the fact that what you've got here is a vision of how innovation in quotidian life drives changes in behaviour and culture. You know, one of the themes that runs through it is that obviously sanitation has such huge cultural significance. And so there's a brilliant passage on considering whether people smelt bad in the Middle Ages, when sanitation was was obviously insufficient, but also the enduring nature of, I guess, speculation that washing might in some way be bad for you, that it would either uncover your pores to disease or that it would somehow leave you more susceptible to heat and cold. And I just love these little snippets that immediately take you into that thing which you always get from a good history book, which is both how similar and how different these lives were. Yes, it's probable, incidentally, that people didn't smell. And the reason for that was that they changed their linen underclothes quite frequently, and their linen underclothes soaked up sweat and smells. What that meant, that doing the laundry was tremendously important because you didn't have to wash yourself, provided somebody was washing your underclothes. And again, one of the things I, I discovered, doing the laundry in early modern times in the 18th century, right through the 19th, early 20th century, was seriously hard work. It was almost always done by women. It was back-breaking. There are stories of women whose hands bled as they had to pummel the clothes because they were laundresses who were working in, you know, their hands got chapped, they were in water all day. But the standards of hygiene must have been different. And as you say, people were tremendously wary of washing anything other than their face and occasionally their hands, because the medics, what did they know? But the medics said, it's dangerous. And and when baths came in eventually, uh, as they did in the sort of late 18th, 30th, 19th century, um, they were often, uh, only you should only take a bath under medical supervision. One doctor reassuringly told his readers, um, it's all right if the bath is hot and it's all right if you use soap, but really hot baths you need to be really, really careful about. Uh, people were tremendously wary about the idea of cleanliness. We have a completely different approach to personal hygiene. We expect to 
be cleaned, to wash, to shower, to bath, uh, you know, every day or very, very frequently. Um, that simply wasn't the case. Uh, they probably didn't smell deeply offensive, but they probably smelt a bit in a way that you and I and people listening to this don't. Or hope that we don't. Um, <laughs> one of the things you do here is you are effectively telling the story of the development of the corporation, the company you call that flawed engine of growth, which I thought was very nice. And, you know, one of the things that strikes you is that particularly in the early days, you know, the at the birth of the New River Company, is how things like contracts for services didn't really exist. And that alongside the kind of technological innovations that we might think about in a story like this are bureaucratic innovations, the fashioning of legal structures that permit corporations like this to exist. Yes, and I, I wouldn't want to over-egg this, but the, the London water industry played a significant role in developing some of these things. Uh, the law of contract, as I understand it, and I am no lawyer, the uh, the law of contract in the sort of early modern period, the Tudor period, covered an arrangement. You bought something and you expected it to be to, to given to you and it would be uh, the quality and, and merchantable quality and so on. But it didn't cover things that were delivered over a period of time. And water, of course, is something you enter into an agreement with a water company we do today. Uh, they, they'll supply you with water over a period of time and you pay them and there are conditions on both sides. And so the lawyers for the New River Company who had to draw up the very first contracts, what we would call contracts with um, customers, uh, hunted about and they came up with the idea that buying water was a bit like uh, leasing a property. So they said, let's establish something we will call a water lease and call our customers water tenants who pay us a water rent, which later became known as a water rate. And there was a lot of creative thinking like that. As you say, there were very important technical innovations. I mean, London was an important market for in the uh, late 18th, early 19th century for steam engines, steam power. Which, of course, you think of steam engines and you think of that kind of driving the, the industrial revolution, but you don't for a minute think of how much water must have been involved in creating that steam. Uh, well, there was water involved in creating steam. You don't get a steam engine unless you've got water. But the important thing from of, about London in, in this, the development of the steam engine was that almost all of London's water came out of the Thames, with the exception of the New River, whose water flowed gradually by gravity down to the, uh, the city from Hertfordshire. It all came out of the Thames, which meant it had to be pumped up. And pumps need to be powered. And you could power them with horsepower. You could power them with water wheels. You could power them uh, with with windmills. But the thing that suddenly made large-scale water supply from rivers um, and from the Thames viable was the invention of the really powerful steam engine. But London, because it bought them to pump water out of the, the, uh, the, the, the Thames, had a, quite a big role to play, uh, along with you know Cornish tin mines and so on, in the development of, of steam technology. Can you tell us a bit about researching this book, you know, I'm a I'm a great one for grubbing around in an archive, and you visit the London Metropolitan Archives, and you and you make some really surprising discoveries there. Yes, it's 
uh, there were two archives I visited. One is at an old pumping station at Kew Bridge on the north bank of the Thames, called now called the London Museum of Water and Steam, which has some of these restored and working steam engines I'm talking about. And they have a little archive there, uh, which has lots of interesting stuff. But the gem I found there was an almost complete run of a 19th century periodical called the Journal of Gas, Lighting, Water Supply and Sanitary Reform. It sounds deadly, but actually it's fascinating. And that's where I found the story of the Richmond water supply that we started by talking about. But the other one is the London Metropolitan Archives, which inherited all the archives of the old Metropolitan Water Board when that was taken over by or became turned into Thames Water. And the Metropolitan Water Board in turn in 1904 inherited all the archives of all the London water companies and all their corporate records, the minutes of their accounts, the correspondence, the plans, uh, uh, the price lists, everything. It, it's, abs- it's absolutely enormous. I have barely scratched the surface with it. And if there is some enthusiastic young researcher out there with a lifetime of um, uh, historical research um, in front of him or her who wants to know what they should work on, Go to the London Metropolitan Archives and mine that water archive there because it's full, absolutely full of all sorts of fascinating stories and facts. And I'm sure there's, you know, a dozen PhDs in there. Amazing. And, you know, it does feel like, again, that this is a book that is interested in bringing to light stories about corporate malfeasance that feel like they're either, you know, something of the present, but also feel like they're straight out of a kind of, you know, trollop novel or something like this. And they do, the companies become shadier and shadier as the story plays out. And maybe tell us a bit about the East London Waterworks, because that that seems to me particularly a low point in in a story with with plenty of of dastardly figures. Yeah, highs and lows, because in the 1830s, the East London Waterworks was at the forefront of what I was talking about a minute or two ago, bringing the very latest high-tech steam engines to London. But the um, I think the, the, the low point comes in 1866, London's last cholera outbreak which the statisticians of the time very, very quickly established was centred on the area served by the East London Waterworks. And what really astonished me is that East London was told that its product was killing its customers in large numbers, that there were huge numbers of deaths in the area uh, from cholera. And the directors seem... I don't know, were they transfixed by, were they indifferent? Were they, were they transfixed with horror? It's hard to tell, but they barely discuss it in their board meetings. A modern company, the moment this was brought to its attention, the board would spend all its time discussing this and nothing else. How can we do, what can we do about it? Proactive measures we can take. The only person who uh, first glance comes out of it well was the company's uh, chief engineer, a man called Charles Greaves, who starts on his own uh, uh, account to do something about um, ensuring that the, uh, the the sources of infection are kept out of the, the East London's supply. But they knew Discover, actually, he had probably knowingly allowed his staff to mix filtered and unfiltered water. Uh, they, the, the East London got most of its water from the River Lee. The Lee was absolutely thick with sewage. Uh, all the water it got out of the Lee was supposed to be filtered, put through slow sand filters, as they're called, which were developed in London, for London, and are still used in London much more than in many other places. And Greaves, because he was worried there wasn't going to be enough water, had allowed his staff 
to combine filtered water, which was fit for supply, uh, with unfiltered water, which was dirty. And that's almost certainly how so many people caught cholera and, and died of it. And he, he initially denied it, said it couldn't be, couldn't be the case. An inquiry found that it was. Um, again, I have, there seems to be no record of, of him apologizing or being reprimanded or anything like that. The directors don't seem to have bothered too much. And the thing that did shock me was that one of the things that happened in the 19th century was that the government was forced to get more and more involved in things like water supply. Uh, it understood, however reluctantly, that it was down to government to set the rules and ensure that they were observed. And it appointed various sorts of inspectors and regulators, the early stages of utility regulation. And these regulators and, and uh, inspectors established that the East London was at fault and nothing happened. Nothing was done. They weren't fined. They weren't reprimanded. It was, uh, and, and, there were, and there's another scandal, a financial scandal that I talk about in the book in great detail, which the same thing happened. The, the, the companies were clearly cooking the books, clearly at fault. The regulators appointed by government established this beyond any doubt, and nothing happened. The government used no sanctions against them at all. And that brings us quite nicely to, to what feels like one of the kind of, you know, whether it's a lesson or whether it's a, you know, an, a, a warning that comes from this book, which is that corporations without public involvement, without the involvement of government and without adequate regulation will cut corners. They will take whatever line leads most directly to the highest profit. And, and you know, these companies were making a fortune. Again, something I didn't know. They were making so much money at the height of their powers. And yet it was really only, as you say, when you get London's first local authority to oversee this, that the system began to function. So I guess, what did you take away from the story in terms of what it says to us about our place in late stage capitalism? Uh, what it said to me, um, and I, I put in a paragraph making this clear because a friend of mine who read the book said, you, you come across as someone who hates capitalism. You, you, you think capitalist co companies are all evil. And actually, I don't. I think um, capitalism is a very good way of funding innovation and delivery of, of complex businesses and, and services. There's nothing inherently wrong with the capitalist way of running an economy. What, However must happen if you give a private company a absolutely vital job like supplying water or taking sewage away is you have to make rules, you have to make limits, you have to have a regulator who in, in, ensures that those limits are observed. And then if the rules are broken, then these companies must be punished in some way. And this is what the Victorians discovered by a process of sort of trial and error and political debate over a period of about 70 years. And it's what we are now discovering again with our privatized water companies. They have been allowed to, I would argue, profiteer, certainly in the first decade of the, this century uh, and the years around then. Um, the shareholders of Britain's private water companies were allowed to skimp on investment and to take absolutely grotesque profits. And the regulators who were put in place when they were privatized in the 1980s, off what the sort of 
commercial financial regulator, the Drinking Water Inspectorate. Actually, I, I, I don't have any criticism of the Drinking Water Inspectorate and what is now the Environment Agency who were there to make sure that they didn't pollute the environment and so on. Those regulators have been, to a degree, asleep on the job. They have allowed these very clever, very large, large mainly now um, multinational companies. These Most London, uh, British water companies are part of multinational groups, so they have uh, multinational shareholders. They've allowed them to play fast and loose with uh, the water systems. They've allowed them to skimp on investment in new plant, both for supplying drinking water and for taking sewage away. And they have very belatedly uh, woken up to that fact, uh, hence the fact that Southern Water is you know, has been given a £90 million fine. But what campaigners say, and I'm sure they're right, is that water companies, for the most part, uh, are being allowed to get away with murder because the, reg- the, the, the regulator doesn't have the staff, doesn't have the resources, and I, one suspects doesn't get the political backing that they need to ensure that the, 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 the water companies are kept in line. And we are today, now in, in the 2020s, learning that lesson once again. It's a lesson that the Victorians learnt and which they resolved by taking water into public ownership. And there are you know, plenty of arguments against public ownership, nationalisation, whatever you want to call it. But actually, the best period in the history of London's water supply was the bulk of the 20th century when it was supplied by the Metropolitan Water Board, which was a publicly owned and publicly run organisation and did a good job. Uh, well, there we go. I was walking with a with a friend of mine, um, the, the historian Tom Holland, who has walked the roots of all of London's buried or not so buried rivers. And what struck me was that it changed the way he thought about the geography of the city. And I wanted to know what writing this book had done to the way that you engage with London as a place when you are moving around it. It opens all sorts. You you see things that you would never have noticed, that you would have taken for granted. I can't now see uh, a hill or a slope in central London without thinking, aha, there's a river there, or there used to be. The River Fleet or the River Tyburn or the River Ephra or whatever it is, is running along the bottom of that, that valley. And there are places where you can hear, as, as Tom, I'm sure, told you, there are places where you can put your ear to a grating in the street and you can hear these old rivers still flowing. For the most part, they're part of the sewer network, but they're, they're still evident underneath the surface. And the other thing I, I found myself doing was looking at Victorian industrial architecture in a new light. And there's still a surprising amount of it in London. Much of it has been repurposed. A lot of it is connected with uh, water supply. All around London, there are uh, areas of open space. There are areas of open water. There are rather handsome brick and stone buildings, which were designed by uh, Victorian engineers who doubled as architects and pretty good architects. Some of them were uh, near where I live. There is a sort of mock Scottish baronial castle, which housed uh, steam pumping engines. There are the, the sewage pumping stations that Sir Joseph Bazalgette built down, downstream, they're known as the cathedrals of sewage. They're beautiful. They're, the decoration is extraordinary. Um, and until you realise that they're there and you 
you learn to look for them. You start looking around. You take them for granted, just like you, when we take water for granted. And it's deepened, enriched my experience of London no end, as my wife will tell you, because she will say, wherever we go, you bore on about uh, waterworks or water architecture. But uh, for me, uh, you know, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. This is a book that is not only fascinating, but it is also beautifully written. Um, there is an extraordinary literary culture of British waterways. And, you know, everything from Ian Sinclair's Down River to Ben Aronovich's The Rivers of London. You know, I was thinking of that wonderful scene in Orlando um, on the Thames. And, and I just wondered whether there is a different cultural history, which, you know, this you've given us a bottom-up cultural history, whether you are so in love with the waterways of London that you might give us a literary history of them as well? That is not an idea that had occurred to me. It is not a bad idea. <laughs> you might you might have to write it because I've got others. Um, <laughs> for one thing, there is a, a, there is a, a work of journalism, which uh, I, suppose, it, it, I suppose it's journalism, which follows on from uh, writing about the history of London's water, which is writing about the history of water in other cities around the world. In particular, the those which are facing really serious challenges. Cape Town in South Africa, a couple of years ago, came within a fortnight of running out of water and everybody was going to have to uh, queue up at standpipes in the street to take a bucket of, uh, you know, every, every day, 20 litres a day. Um, Los Angeles is living on borrowed time. Los Angeles and California, Southern California generally and Arizona and, and uh, uh, Utah, the Southwest United States is facing an absolute crisis in its water supply. And there are so many places around the world where either the history of the water supply or the current crisis facing uh, the cities are you know, really fascinating. That's, that's one alternative. The other, actually, one of the stories I tell at some length in the book is, is a story about what may be... It's a, a sort of accounting fraud, possibly. I'm not sure that it's fraud, but it's it was certainly I illegal. And boy, there were some great fraudsters in the, in the 19th century. Uh, there were some great fraudsters in, in fiction, in Dickens, in Trollope and so on. But their real life equivalents were um, extraordinary people, abs absolutely marvellous. And I'm tempted to write about some of them, just to pen portraits. So Nick, I wonder, you know, you've interviewed many of the greatest authors of, of our times. And yet here you are, being interviewed. What's that like? Well, since this is the first interview I have done about my book, the first time I've ever been interviewed about my own book, um, I have to say I was extraordinarily nervous. Um, you've been very kind. You've not. You've, you've, you've said nice things about the book, which does make a tremendous difference. Every author likes to be flattered and, and, and praised. <laughs> but it's it, you do feel rather vulnerable. You put this thing out there and you're being asked about it. And other people seem to deal with they, they they seemed to deal with the questions I used to ask them in a very sort of articulate way, and you think, God, can I do that? Am I going to be able to do that? Uh, and uh, you know, it's it's a bit of an ego trip, but it's also really quite unnerving. Well, I think you've been brilliant. So uh, yeah, gold star from me. Um, listen, Nick, I'm afraid that's all we have time for, but I just cannot tell you what a profoundly 
perspective-altering, completely fascinating book this is. I will never look at London or my toilet uh, at the same way, <laughs> in the same way again. Thank you so much for speaking to us on Intelligence Squared. Nick Hyam's book is The Mercenary River, out on the 14th of April from Headline Books. I've been Alex Preston. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.